Welcome to Linux Link Radio by TimeSys, the podcast for embedded Linux developers who want to simplify and speed up their custom platform development. Visit timesys.com today for access to our podcast archives. Hello, this is Machi here. Hi, this is Gene. And we are back. Today, we are going to talk about a slightly different topic. For the past two episodes, we co- we were covering a fairly complex topic of porting a Linux kernel to a new platform. And <clears throat> we definitely can continue on that, on that note, but we've decided today to uh, break that string of complex podcasts and talk about uh, a slightly lighter topic. Yeah, so today we're going to dig into setting up networking services on your host for development. We get, believe it or not, a lot of questions on those. And there are some mysterious elements and there are some things where it's just new ground for people. We want to spend some time to talk about understanding what you're doing so you're just not going through the mechanics of setting something up. Right, because when you work with an embedded platform, you usually have to set up a number of services, network services, to not only boot the Linux kernel, but to get the Linux kernel image across the network to that target platform and to be able to communicate then with the um, outside world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I know we wanted to, there's a, there's a big alphabet soup of things that are involved. And I know one of the, despite my desire, we're not going to talk about the, you know, the OSI network model, even, even though I really want to. Well, um, that would take another hour, but yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it would bore everyone to death. So, so instead we're just going to talk about the services that, are, that get set up and, and how they, and how they work. And, and the other thing too, and I know we want to touch it because I, I know you got ready when for the I went out and ice skated today instead of getting ready for the webinar. But or no podcast, that's what this. Is. So I, I know we have a couple different things to, to touch on, but some of it's hardware configuration that we we can recommend, and we know that is successful with people, and then some of it's software. Hmm. So it's, is that safe or yes? And and well, we'll approach the topic from two angles because we have experience with customers that work in the uh, Linux environment, but also customers that have only a Windows machine uh, oh, yeah. available. Yeah, there's a lot of folks that, that way. I, it's just a different environment. It's, it's not as though it's, you should feel bad or you should feel like you need a Linux host. You, you can certainly do, do your development work just fine. But in terms of hardware, I mean, probably one of the, the, the cheapest hardware purchases you can make in order to make your life easy is that second network card uh, that you can dedicate to your board. I found that the people that go out and do that, it makes your software configuration a lot easier. Now, there's a lot more, pardon me, a lot less variables you need to account for. Mm-hmm. And and if you do that, you can, you know, most people you can plug it in your workstation in the back of your car, and then you can get a crossover cable. Mm-hmm. Um, I, gone are the days. I remember when I first started doing this you know, way back when, mm-hmm. ancient history, whatever, where some cards wouldn't even work if you had a crossover cable, depending how depending upon the card and how they program the 5P. For the most part, if you get a card now and you get a crossover cable, uh, you can plug the crossover ca- crossover cable into the network, and it just swaps the send and receive and the clear to send and clear to uh, receive. But you plug those th- things one into another, and that way you have one connection between the board and the, the card, and it's not running through a network. There's really no latency issues, and it, it solves a whole, whole class of problems. Right, so this is actually one of the approaches that allows you to um, set up a separate subnet where you can have a static IP addresses assigned Mm -hmm. to both target and your host machine. And at the same time, being able to go out on the um, outside network and, for example, browse different network sites from your target platform. 
Yeah, that's one of the, the the things to remember is that whenever you set things up, and we'll talk about this later, right? But if you set up the, the proper routing, you can certainly sit at the board, even though it might be on a completely different networking addressing scheme, and still reach services you know outside the the company if if necessary. But at least within your campus network. So so this is good because that means that because of the fact that you have um, a static IP addresses, you don't have to set up some of the network services, which in other cases you probably have to have present on your host machine. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the scenario that you describe is one example. Another scenario is you use a hub of some sort on a network and you yeah. connect uh, your host machine and the target platform to the same hub. Yep. And then you have to somehow tell the target platform what its IP address address is. So you have to mm-hmm. somehow serve some information that's relevant to tasks that, that you're going to perform. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it all depends on how your 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 setup, right? Because if you're at a fairly small company and you're you're sitting on some class C network scheme, right? You probably could you probably have a wide range of unused addresses, right? Mm. But when you get at a bigger company and you have a campus sort of network, you may be on a, like a, even a you know class B scheme or something like that, and you may not know which addresses are in fact available for use because right. you you have no idea what nodes are out there on your network. Exactly, and so. I found one way, at least here, a time system it could be different. One way to really frost the shorts of the net, of the guy running the network is to set up a duplicate IP address, right? <laughs> it's it's guaranteed it's guaranteed to get him or her upset. Well, I don't want to be at your desk when he comes and looks for you. Yeah, it upsets Steve all the time because I've done that a few times here, and he'll show up and he'll grumble around and walk around, you know, wielding a weapon, saying, <laughs> "So hold on, hold on. Let's let's rewind. We we have identified so far two scenarios. One yeah. where you have a, a second card plugged into your uh, a PCI slot on the host machine, and you have then statically set up network to your target platform. Mm-hmm. And the second scenario is when you use a hub or router or any other you know corporate subnet mm-hmm. where you have to serve the IP address yep. to your target platform. Yeah. So those are the two scenarios. That's correct. Those are two scenarios, and I guess we'll have scenario one and a half, mm. right? Because it's, it's computers, right? So you can always make it more complex. You may you confuse me now. <laughs> What's, What's the one scenario and one and a half? Be? So the one and a half one is where you have the don't scowl on me. So the the one and a half one is where you have the network set. So you have the other. You have your machine dual home, you have your yeah. network, but you still dynamically serve the addresses to the board. Just because you've sort of wired things up with its own little private network for that one card doesn't mean you still can't use the services if you wish. Right. Absolutely. Um, so it's, at that point, it's preference. And it's worth talking about. I know you're still rolling your eyes, but it's still worth talking about because it changes the way you can configure the effort you have to put into configuring the software so that responds correctly. Right. So um, what are the services that you have to set up on your on a host machine in a more, most complex scenario, meaning <clears throat> you're using a hub to interconnect your target and a host machine to a network. What are the services that are needed? So the first one is that the, the board... Let's list them out first, okay? Well, I, I know. Okay. Go ahead. No, no, no. no. So Go, the first you one... You list them out. <laughs> no, go ahead. So uh, DHCP, uh-huh. is that the one that you were about to mention? Yeah. Oh, Okay. Uh, the um, TFTP, yep, NFS mm-hmm. service, and um, well, those are the services that are setting up different different mechanisms, but they are also managed by other services. Oh yeah, there's a trick in there, right? And that's where you have uh, your buddy XINETD come in. Now XINETD works with 
it's I don't know, I don't know if it's a cousin service or a nephew service. I don't know how to relate, but it has a service Super called Port service. Map. And so, uh, and that's something that most people don't really dig around with on their computer. But mm. what Port Map does is it associates a connection on a port on your machine with a certain service. Mm-hmm. Once that service is identified, XINETD will then start the service mm-hmm. and with whatever parameters you have sent. And I, I, the real trick, I always found this kind of interesting. The real trick is that when XINETD starts up, it changes the standard in and standard out. And I don't know what happens to standard error. I don't know. Maybe it goes into a file somewhere of the service that started mm-hmm. so that it, so as far as the service is still talking over it's standard right. standard out sockets, and that's how data flows back and forth. Right. And then whenever the connection drops, XINET determinates the service. Right. That's pretty cool because you know as another connection comes in on that port, uh, port map will start up another instance, and it, yep, it establishes another. Yeah, I, I know. At one point, we we got when those uh, guys from marketing made us plan out or things. But we talked about you know talking about setting up a you know how to work with XINET if you're an embedded developer. And it's yeah. it's worth. It's an interesting topic. But not this topic. So, so XINID starts the first service that XINID would start that that's needed in that scenario that we mentioned is DHCP and and DHCP is does it really do that uh, though? I think DH does. Does DHCP really run through XINID? Oh, you're right. It's, it's got its own. Well, you can set it up so that it runs can get kicked off by another service. But uh, you're right that I the think DHCP, it lists on its own port. It that. actually sits on its own port, and you start it by running a, well, either manually starting DHCP on a specific Ethernet port yeah, or starting DHCP daemon on all the ports and yeah. then it would, it would serve all the subnets that you've configured for, for your host yeah, machine. Yeah, and that's really data. That's, that's one of the others talking about, you know, the angry IT guy, right? So if you're running, you know, DHCP, mm-hmm. DHCP is the official protocol is it's a first response protocol. So if you start up an XINET service on your machine, and you're sitting on a campus subnet or whatever else, it'll begin happily serving addresses unless you properly limit it to, I mean, any, to it, anyone on your on your subnet. Yeah, you said XINID, DHCP, oh, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, I screwed it up. No, that's the same. I, I'm thinking about DHCP, but sometimes we talk about XINID as yeah. well. But DHCP is, is based on a datagram protocol, right? Yes, it you, is. You've mentioned that earlier, I oh, guess. Yeah. But once you start up that daemon, it's going to listen. It will start serving incoming feeds or incoming requests for IP addresses. Yeah. Well, I mean, the actual protocol says, right, the DHCP client mm. uh, sends out a broadcast that says, hey, I need an address. Uh, I'm summarizing. And then right. and then some DHCP server responds and says, hey, here's your address. Yes. Back to that. It's the first responding DHCP server is, in fact, the winning one in this scenario. So... If you set it up for, if you don't limit what network adapter it responds to, mm-hmm. or if you aren't particular and say only respond to these certain addresses, and that's in your slash etcdhcp.com file, look at the man page, put mm-hmm. that way. If you don't set that up correctly, it'll begin responding to anyone. But- okay, so so an embedded world, the DHCP requests are coming from bootloaders. Yep. And that's a way you can get the Linux kernel, um, well, to get the Linux kernel across the wire via TCP IP onto a target platform, yep. you need first to assign a, an IP address to yes. a target. And that, mm-hmm. that request starts with a bootloader sending a request for DHCP. And, and most bootloaders in today's world, they do send those DHCP requests. That's correct. Right? And that's unless you go, going back to, you know, unless you go route number one, which is the simplest route possible. And at which point... If you have a dual home machine and you have one and only one network 
you know, one only one node on your network, you can set the IP address to anything within the address range and you can set it statically. It's only if you get in the situation where you want to begin using dynamic assignment, maybe because that's the way your board's going to work out in the field and you just want to make sure everything sort of makes sense. That's when you need to to be careful for the service. And uh, something that you were talking about already, uh, when you set up the DHCP service, you've mentioned network address Mm -hmm. to to, to put that in a DHCP.conf file. Mm -hmm. That network address is really a, a MAC address of the network controller of your target platform. That's exactly correct. Yeah, because you have to identify it by MAC address because mm. there is no, you know, IP is, you know, different layer of that protocol model, right? Yeah. So all it really knows is that there's a broadcast that came in from the certain right. MAC adapter or from the certain adapter identified by this MAC address. So that MAC address can be found either uh, when the bootloader starts Mm-hmm. Or very often, it's also marked on a board itself. So uh, with that info, if you can get to that info, plug that into a DHCP.conf file. Mm-hmm. And that way, you'll be in peace with your IT guide because your DHCP server is not going to mess up any of anybody else's uh, yeah. platform. It's a good idea to do that. Yeah. So we covered DHCP uh, in, a di- well, in a dynamic approach. And then we talked about static IP assignment. Yeah. In which case, you don't need DHCP ser- service set up on your host at all. Yeah, and, in which, and if you're in that case, you know, for the bootloader, let's talk about the mm-hmm. bootloader. So the bootloader, so you just set the IP address and do a save, and it writes up you know, somewhere in the flash. And then you know, when your kernel starts, you say IP equals, and you just assign it the address, and you put a bunch of colons, and then the word off. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, to this day, right, I still don't want to type off because I think I'm turning the adapter off. Yeah. But the I think it's four colons. I have to every time I have to look at the documentation and count them and to understand why. But the the no, it is five. It's five colons. So you put five colons and then then off. And then what off means is it won't auto configure the adapter for you automatically. Because mm-hmm. the kernel, even though if you pass it in a all the parameters, it'll still believe that you went to DHCP for that adapter and turn that off so it doesn't happen. Right. So now that we have an IP address yep. assigned, yep. what's the next task? Ne- next task is to be able to send a Linux kernel to the target platform, right? Yep. Which which means that you need to have some sort of a protocol in place that will serve request for a file. Mm-hmm. And most of bootloaders, you boot uh, Red Boot and, and other embedded platform bootloaders, they support a protocol called Trivial File Transfer Protocol, right? TFTP. Yep. It's a TCP IP or datagram connection? So believe it or not, that is a, you know, I don't know. I believe it's a datagram connection mm-hmm. because what, this is going back because we, at one point, this is a segue, at one point we implemented in Java a TFTP server mm-hmm. here. But, and so I think we thought, oh, that's really interesting. Let's never do that again, right? So, but when you do that, it is datagrams. Mm-hmm. And you put a, it has a little serial number on the datagrams because datagram there's no ordering guarantee. Right. And then what happens is that the the, the packets will come through and they'll come with a counter on them. Yeah. And the the listener TFTP listener just expects the next packet to have a, one greater than the current packet, and then right. as a little bit of a negotiation system if it gets right. out of sync. Yeah. And it has to retransmit if if there are errors. Yeah. So TFTP, to have a TFTP connection, you have to set up a TFTP service on your yes. host machine. Uh-huh. Right? Do most of Linux-based hosts no, come with not. TFTP? No, they do not. Um, like, again, if you, if you just dump, um, what's the thing all the kids are using these days? Ubuntu, right? So if you just dump Ubuntu out of the box, no, no, it's not there. Uh, you have to do 
yeah. and bring in that package and install it manually. And even when TFTP installs manually, because of the, I'm making close to my finger, security concerns, mm-hmm. it's usually even installed in an off state. So yeah, you need it's to, disabled. Yeah, it's disabled. And so you need to enable it. Mm-hmm. Enable it meaning, you know, go into the the file that XINIT maintains for for TFTP and turn it on. Mm-hmm. And then even then, a lot of users are paranoid. And I never understand why. It's like you're you're on a network that's isolated with seven other people. Yeah. Yet you have huge concerning concerns over your TFTP server. But they'll even change the rates for the directory so that TFTP can only be used for, for read-only. So if I'm on a, on a Linux box, how do I know whether I have TFTP installed or not? I would normally go to etc slash xinet.d.d slash and look for an entry under that subdirectory yep. for TFTPD or... There's, I think, another name or different service can have different names there. No, it's TFTP. Um, is for TFTP. FTFTP is another, I think, one. Yeah, because I know on Red Hat, what I do for that is I just run check config, mm. dash dash list, and it appears in the in the bottom, and that's for the X config. Yeah, that's the fastest way to find it. You can just grep for TFTP, right? So when you install the package for TFTP, a configuration file is going to be stored inside it at etc xinad.d subdirectory. Yeah. And as you said, there will be a, an option in that file that will tell the TFTP daemon to be disabled yeah, and I think in they, an initial state. They're really nice. So it says disables equaled yes, right? If yeah. I, I'm, I'm working from memory here. So it says disabled equals yes. So if you're like tired or distracted and you look at it and you see... Like you see the word disabled, then you see yes, and then you, you think in your head, oh, wow, it's turned on, right? And yeah. then, then it doesn't work, and then, then you go back and think, oh, I'm stupid, right? So um, yeah, it's in disabled state. And then in the same thing, I think in the, in the arguments for TFTP, you'll, you'll see dash D in the directory, I believe, so mm-hmm. you, which is usually TFTP boot. Now, that's, yes. that's the thing that people that have their shorts in a knot about security will change the rights to so they can only be read from. Right, and so the slash TFTP boot uh, directory, the one that's present in that configuration file by default, uh, is the location where we're going to store our Linux kernel image for the transfer to the target platform. So if whenever a bootloader requests a specific image name, that image name has to be present in that slash TFTP boot subdirectory. Also, under etcxinet.d.conf file, you'll mm-hmm. see enabled services entry mm-hmm. and TFTP should also be listed there as mm-hmm. one of the services yes. that's enabled. And again, by installing a package, I think that gets changed uh, automatically. Yeah, it does the right the right sort of things for you. I've never had to set it up 100% from scratch. I usually install the, the package or the RPM. Or- At this stage, we can transfer the Linux kernel to a target platform, right? Mm-hmm. All mm-hmm. the networking services mm-hmm. are up and running mm-hmm. for that. And now I can uh, launch the kernel boot up process on the target. Mm -hmm. So the the remaining step is to get the root file system mounted on that platform over the network. Yeah. Well, there's a couple different approaches. Yeah. Because, you know, what some folks are doing nowadays is they will make a real small initial root file system and they'll tack it onto the kernel. Because in 2.6, the mechanism for a bootstrapping file system is a lot cleaner than it was in 2.4. 2.4 had the, had the notion of an initial RAM disk and it was sort of bolted on there and the effort between switching between the bootstrap root file system or the initial root file system and the real root file system was mm-hmm. eh, kind of dicey. 
And I know that's been cleaned up uh, substantially in 2.6, such that the kernel actually always assumes that some root file system exists. exists. If it doesn't, it's a no operator. It runs a few instructions, says, oh, there's nothing here, and then it goes forward. But you could reasonably go the route of including a small root file system that at least brings up the system and gets bash running, so you have a prompt. But I know, I know, I sort of jump, but I know that's insufficient for the, the vast majority of users because then in order to put out all the services in there to really do something on the board, it becomes right. uh, just and difficult to get configured correctly. Exactly, because if you have an application that's very demanding for oh, development yeah. purposes, you're not going to be able to uh, have all the glibc symbols in your, oh, yeah. in, your, in your target platform. But for development purposes, you want to have those present in your root file system so that application development is seamless and you don't have to spend time looking for the right library. So in other words, the root file system that you want to use for development is probably a fairly rich version of it. And hence, because of its size, oh, yeah. has to be hosted on another machine. Yep. And the other thing too is that by using NFS, and I, I want to just bring that, but mm-hmm. by using NFS it makes it a lot less of a drag to do testing because mm-hmm. if you had a, something where it was all put inside that uh, initial initial RAM disk, you'd have to build your application, copy it on the root file system. You could do it in the script and then but then rebuild the kernel and then reboot the machine and it'd just be a drag. So it makes a lot of sense in, as you're bootstrapping development to use NFS. So uh, how do you set up the NFS service? Yeah, so NFS is actually pretty cool to set up, right? So that's another thing where it runs a couple demons, right? Mm-hmm. Again, the easiest thing to do is to, if you're running Red Hat, do check config dash dash list and turn it on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then the, the services it runs, the, the key file is slash etc exports. Yes. And that's where you export your root file system. Right. And in that file, it's, it's easy as, it's just easy, right? So in that file, you do the directory you want to export, okay? And then some white space and then the IP addresses that are allowed to connect to that and an open parenthesis and some options. Mm-hmm. And I know the typical options that the user will have is, you know, read, write, RW slashed, and then a comma, if you separate to a no root squash and that right. no root squash is no under root under squash. And what that means is that when users connect in as root there, instead of remapping their that zero UID and zero GID to something more harmless on the target system for security yeah. purposes, they instead come in actually as root, which is important for the board. I mean, the right. board needs to, to start as root and have its root file system right. work. And, that and way. we'll talk a bit more about that particular aspect when we talk about setting up those services under Sigwin, under Windows. Yeah, there's a wrinkle there. Um, but before we do that, to start the NFS, you have to export those two demons. I mean, services, right? You have yep. to start an NFS lock and then NFS service itself. Mm-hmm. And uh, usually there are, well, there, there are services that if you start typing them in on, on a command line, they, they'll autocomplete and you'll be able to say service start. If you can't find them, they are under etsy xinad.d, I guess. NFS lock, and then space start, stop. I think those are under init.d. I think it's etc. Well, could be. I think they are. Slash etc, init.d, slash NFS, and NFSD, and NFS lock. Yeah, they are not services started, but by an X sign at D, I guess. Yeah, depending upon, like I said, you know, I go, I'm still old school for that, right? So I just run the, the scripts, but you're right, there's service start, service stop, and then the name of the service. And I, whenever I do it manually, you know, the young whippers you now look at me and say, oh, what are you doing? That's, that's the wrong way to do it. And 
Well, so, but at that time, after start starting those two services, your kernel on a target platform should um, come up. And uh, if your command line, kernel command line, specifies the root equals dev NFS, mm -hmm. the, uh, the kernel will attempt to mount network file system subdirectory yep. that was served via DHCP. Yes, it will. Yeah. Quote, right? So. Yeah, and and the the other other trick worth mentioning is that for NFS on Linux hosts, you really only need to export the top level directory, and because uh, you see folks that you know they may have put their founders you know slash op slash something slash something else slash something something else, and you don't have to bother. You can just export the top level when you've exported everything everything underneath. But Windows, you mentioned, you can get into some interesting things. Right. Yeah, you know, we had. Um, we did some work on it, actually. And we, it's back in the community and everything. But for Windows, you don't really don't have the notion of no root squash. Right. And in fact, you need to remap your GID. Um, yeah, your UID and your GID. Group ID and user ID. Right? Into something appropriate for your platform. How, how do you do that? You, you first have to uh, bring in a, a command prompt and find out first what are the numeral values mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. uh, group ID and user ID. You can find yeah. that by running, for example, an ls command on a current uh, yeah. directory. And there will be two columns there, I think, right right after the permissions mm -hmm. and file size, yeah. that those two columns with those numbers. I think dash n will come up with numeric. Mm. Or or if you look in slash etc, this is on, the, this is on a Sigma system, slash etc slash password, P-A-S-S-W-D, mm -hmm. it'll sort of shadows whatever happened to be inside of the Windows system. <laughs> so for Windows, it'll say, okay, this particular number here is the symbol that represents the, I think they call it a SID or something for the user on that system. Um, so how, how do you start those different services under Sigma? We've talked about one of the uh, challenges or differences in when you work under Windows host OS, but... How do you start the um, XINET-D? How do you start the DHCP and all those other services that we talked about earlier? Okay, so it's actually pretty cool. This is this is my, I think it's cool. Who knows? So Windows already has has a mechanism that's similar to XINET-D for starting mm -hmm. services, right? Yeah. And as a matter of fact, they call them you know services, right, in Windows. Yes. And uh, Sigwin has a command, I think it's called... Sigrun server. Yeah, Sigrun server. Thank you very much. That will install a serv service for you appropriately inside the Windows registry. So in Linux, where things are sane, right? There's a text file, whatever else you use it. In yeah. Windows, all that data goes in the registry, right? Yes. So when you run Sigrun server and you give it some you know, appropriate parameters, it, it, it will go stick in the correct registry entries so that when you go look at the services panel, you can in fact see services. And Sigwin comes with a port map service, mm -hmm. which is vitally important, right? So port map service listens on all the ports and then we'll figure out what service to run. And then once you have port map running, uh, then you can run XINET-D and then you can run DHCP, DHCP and, and other sort of services that Sigwin expects you to be running. Yeah. Well, one of the uh, challenges or pitfalls... Not Sigwin uh, expects you to be running, but you, that, your, that your board needs to in order to operate. Yeah, to operate correctly. But one of the challenges that we've observed from our customers here is that when you look at the services panel, mm -hmm. sometimes the services panel shows that XINID and all those services are not running. Yes. 
whereas in fact they are running. And this is actually a challenge around a Windows host operating systems. And, and the only way to verify after you launch those services that they are really operating is to look at the processes that are running. Yes. And if you see the um, all those services present there, can rest assured that they are running indeed. So, I mean, the Sigrun server, just run the help for that. It's if, I know if I talk over it, it'll be just too confusing, right? It's amazingly easy to both register and unregister a service with Sigwin. It was really well done. The guys that worked yeah. on that, they, they should get a, well, something, yeah. but it's really well done how that looks. <laughs> well, so the, the semantics are very simple. Um, yeah. the, you, you basically say Sigrun server, then a command, which can be either install, remove, or stop, start service. Uh-huh. And then after that, the third command is really the service that you want to initiate, right? So XINET D or DHCP D and all the uh, configuration files that we've covered for DHCP and NF- uh, TFTP, they reside in the exact same places under Sigwin as they reside under Linux. So at C subdirectory, you will find dhcp.conf and um, at cxnd.d, you will find other services. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's wonderfully done. It, I, I I appreciate that. So uh, hopefully this this particular topic was of an interest to you and it wasn't as heavy as the previous set of topics that we've tackled we plan on actually continuing the the theme from yeah. our last podcast where we talked about porting the linux kernel to a new platform and we plan on talking about what it takes to write a new device driver for a platform sure but again just to space them out a bit um, yeah. we wanted to talk about networking yeah and again if you have any comments or questions or Anything at all, feel free to write into us. It's a podcast at timesys.com. You can always visit us, www.timesys.com slash podcast. Yeah, I think that's I short, think it's what I really shortcut. want it to be. Um, <laughs> the, who knows what they decided to make it actually well, be. It's, it's routing to the right place. I think that that's a good, that's a good link. Yeah, who knows? Oh, oh, that's right, too. We can go to linuxlinkradio.com. I think Times has splurged and spent a whole what, 450 or something to register that domain name after what, like six <laughs> meetings and who never knows what. But I think we own, I think we have Linux Link Radio. So you always stop at linuxlinkradio.com uh, too. I can see that uh, marketing folks are already showing the chuckling, squeezing kind of sign and meaning uh-huh. guys got it out now. So uh, without further ado, thank you very much for, yeah, great. for your and, attention. And today. We're lo- yeah, we're looking forward to diving back into doing uh, device driver stuff next time. This podcast was brought to you by TimeSys. Are you new to embedded Linux? Looking for a way to simplify your next project? The Linux Link service by TimeSys makes it easy to build your custom embedded Linux platform. Go to timesys.com today or call 866-392-4897 to learn more.